and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people, known today as Stockbridge Muncie Community. I'm Lavonia Mallory. And I'm Lavender. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first Mark Dunley talks with James Browning of F Minus. Then Greg Campbell Cohen talks to Elizabeth E.P. Press about the lead pipe replacement plan and the budget for that. He also discusses Timber's new initiative called Adopt a Foil, an attempt to make getting information from various agencies more transparent. After that, we hear from Sean Young and Tony Gaddy, founder of and president slash CEO, Upstate New York Black Chamber of Commerce, to talk about economic and entrepreneurship. Finally, Lisa A. Phillips talks about her 2015 book, Unrequited, The Thinking Woman's Guide to Romantic Obsession. Uh, But first, some headlines. This first item isn't local, but but may affect some listeners. As college-bound students and their families well know, the rollout of the new form for FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, has been troubled by delays and computer glitches. This delays students getting information on how much financial aid they will be eligible for. In response, the State University of New York Chancellor John King Jr. asked all SUNY students to extend the enrollment deposit deadline from May 1st to at least May 15th. All SUNY schools, Mm. that is. More college news. New York State Attorney General Letitia James has announced that College Board, the nonprofit organization that coordinates many exams, including PSAT and SAT and advanced placement tests, has agreed to pay $750,000 to New York to settle claims that it violated privacy statutes by selling students' personal information data to colleges, scholarship programs, and other clients. The Troy Record reports that students in the Capital Region's BOCES Digital Media Design Program recently won a national award for the Electrical Vehicle Association for their contributions to the New York Capital District Drive Electric Week social media campaign. Congrats to all involved. In environmental news, the Department of Environmental Conservation has reported that in 2023, striped bass had their lowest spawn since 1985, raising questions about the species' ability to survive in the Hudson River, one of its two main breeding grounds, well, locations, in the Northeast. Over a year ago, New York State authorized the practice of human composting, allowing natural processing of human remains into about a cubic yard of basically fertilizer. However, the Times Union reports that no company has applied for permission to open such a processing facility. Hmm. That's it for the headlines. Now on for our first segment. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518 272 2390. In this first segment, Mark Dunley talks to the founder of F Minus, James Browning, about lobbying practices of fossil fuel, the lobbying practices of fossil fuel companies. We're talking with uh, James Browning, who is the uh, founder and executive director of F Minus. And recently they put out a report that documented the uh, I guess somewhat troubled relationship between various lobbying firms who often lobby against uh, sort of climate uh, issues on behalf of the fossil fuel industry, but seem to also provide some cover by, you know, lining up more, you know, liberal groups to also lobby for. So, James, maybe just start off explaining, you know, what is F minus and 
you know, what, what prompted uh, this study? Um, so thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, F minus is a new climate group that looks at fossil fuel lobbyists who are simultaneously lobbying on behalf of victims of the climate crisis or environmental groups or cultural institutions. Um, and it's a really extraordinary dynamic because the climate crisis is now so bad that if you know a lobbyist in Albany only had you know Exxon Mobil or Shell as a client, it would be pretty easy uh, to shun them, to close the door, don't return the call, don't return the email. Um, and the top lobbying firms know this, and so they surround themselves uh, with clients who are in fact doing good things in New York State and even some good things on uh, climate and environmental. Um, clients. So just as one example, you know, um, the lobbying firm of um, Hinman Straub also represents the Adirondack Foundation, which has given more than $2 million in environmental grants in New York State in the last few years. <laughs> the problem here is that Hinman Straub also represents the Koch companies, which historically have been one of the biggest funders of climate denialism and also um, the Iroquois gas transmission system in the state. And so this firm can go around um, Albany claiming to say that, um, sure, they represent, you know, these fossil fuel interests, but they also, we also represent environmental interests, and we're part of the, you know, solution on climate. And this is why these, these firms still have um, credibility and are still seen as, like, you know, responsible actors in the state legislature, when their clients are incredibly irresponsible and have, are bringing us to the point of um, calamity on climate. Now, one of the things certainly been a fair amount of attention on is that, you know, the big players, the Exxons, the, the shells of the world have been, you know, funding a pretty massive misinformation campaign. Um, oh, you know, air source heat pumps never work, particularly in upstate New York. You're going to freeze to death. It's sort of unreliable. Are these companies, you know, sort of part of that misinformation campaign? Well, you know, I think buyer beware when it comes to hiring um, a lobbying um, firm, because if you're, you know, a, a university, a nonprofit group with, um, you know, respect, um, and supporters in New York State, and let's let's talk about like healthcare interests. Like for example, in New York State, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, or the Maternity and Early Childhood Foundation. That's a foundation um, that is specifically like focused on health issues for young mothers, um, children. And the you know dissonance here is that the fossil fuel clients of their firm, Ostroff Associates, have fossil fuel projects in New York that um, for decades have been harming people who live near the plants, mothers and, and young children, and are contributing to a climate crisis that has disproportionately negative impacts on environmental justice communities, communities of color, and especially on like fetal, infant, and, and maternal health. So um, it, it's, it's incredibly dangerous in, in our view for an organization that's promoting, you know, let's say healthcare or trying to help people in these communities in New York to then go hire a firm that's essentially causing these problems for the very people they're trying to help. And you become complicit in the misinformation being put out on, on climate. You're giving your good name, your credibility to a firm that is spreading misinformation on climate. And so this is what F minus and our partners are, are trying to disrupt. Yeah, I, I, I read an article about your report, and I believe one of the uh, big climate bills you, you cited in the report um, was the New York uh, Heat Act, which actually the governor's put a good part of it into her budget. That's the one many people know for the 100-foot rule for, for gas hookups, try to end the big subsidies, and particularly try to align the efforts of the Public Service Commission with the climate law because they've been you know, kind of promoting uh, the expansion of, of, uh, of natural gas. So, you know, is the New York Heat Act one of the examples where you're seeing these lobbying firms playing both sides? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the New York Heat Act is um, key 
um, as to whether um, you know buildings, communities are going to get locked into using gas in the, the future, or whether they can get off gas and get to cleaner alternatives. Um, and you know, again, if you put this grow gas push by a big firm like Brown and Weinraub, which is the, the top firm in New York, the top fossil fuel lobbying firm. This is a firm that on its website, if you try to read about their work on energy and the environment, they just talk about their advocacy for um, scooters um, and e-bikes. So they, they have clients for whom the New York Heat Act is very threatening. And then if you look at their other clients, it's Syracuse University that has moved to divest from fossil fuels. It's Google, which talks a lot about how they're going to go carbon negative in their own operations. And it's Houghton Mifflin Publishing, uh, which has fiction, nonfiction books about the climate crisis. They have partnered with the U.S. Green Building Council um, programs to make like schools more energy um, efficient. Um, but their own lobbying firm um, is uh, the obstacle to making buildings in New York more energy efficient. So it just, it makes it seem like for Houghton Mifflin, they're not serious on, on climate. This is all just about um, expediency. Now, one of the problems I've noticed in the past is the few lobbying firms that actually have a reputation for most of the time being on the good side of stuff, you know, sometimes are approached by uh, industries that have a little bit more of a false climate or false environmental solution, you know, sort of pushing, say, recycling in a little direction that really has some environmental problems. Was, you know, that an issue that you looked at, you know, you know, firms that have a reputation of being, you know, on the uh, consumer or the environmental side, you know, being hired by the industry to sort of sell their reputation? Right. That's a that's a great question. And so to give you an example from all the way in the other side of the, the country, and I think this helps put um, New York in perspective, we're working in Washington state right now. We're focused on King County, which is Seattle. And the fact that so King County, very progressive on climate, their lobbyist works for TransAlta, which has been a coal company in the past. Their lobbyist out there says, oh, it's fine. I'm just trying to close the coal plant down. Well, the problem is that TransAlta also operates an entire fleet, more than 10 of gas plants in Canada, part of why Canada is locked into using gas for several more decades. So even in these gray areas that you're talking about, there may be a big fossil fuel company pushing some initiative to get into some other energy source. The fact is that the firm's um, impact on climate is so overwhelmingly destructive um, that it is um, dangerous to work with them. You are normalizing the idea of working with the oil and gas industry. You are saying it's fine, it's okay, I don't mind that this firm is contributing to the climate crisis. So we only have about a minute left. So I asked a two-part, you know, question. So what can be done, um, you know, about the situation? Is there reforms that can be made, or is it just that people need to be more careful about their clients? That they, I mean, the lobbying firms that they are hiring, and and second, if people want to read the report or find out what you're doing, how, how best can they get that information in 45 seconds? You can find our report um, on our website, f-dot-org. Um, I hope everyone will read it. And I think when you do, um, you'll be shocked to see that it might be your own school where you went or company where you work or art museum that you patronize like the Guggenheim or new museum or theater you go to like Lincoln Center. They are complicit in this problem. They are hiring firms who are leading us towards climate calamity. But the hopeful thing here is these organizations have a conscience, they have shame, they can be forced to change their behavior. And I hope people will contact these schools, these art museums, um, and tell them it is shameful. They should not be working with these fossil fuel firms. And I think people- uh, James Browning from uh, F minus, and this is my Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Mark Dunley speaking with James Browning of F minus. In the next segment, Greg Campbell-Cohen talks to EP about the lead pipe replacement plan and the budget. Today we are talking with Greg Campbell-Cohen, the managing officer at Timber, to see what he and this community advocacy and research organization is paying attention to in Troy at this time. 
Greg, welcome. Welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Thanks for having me back. I'm wondering what is Timber focusing on these days related to the new administration, environment, our lead pipe problem, policing, or beyond? I would say we're focusing mostly on what we were focusing on under the last administration and seeing how we can make progress under um, sort of new conditions. The top priority until we get it done is going to be replacing all of the lead service lines in the city of Troy. Mayor Madden committed to replacing 100% of the lead service lines at no direct cost to residents. And Mayor Mantello on the campaign trail promised the same, but in four years. And in order to do that, the city of Troy is going to need to replace about 10 times as many pipes over the next four years as they did last year. And so figuring out what needs to happen to make that possible is um, really at top of mind. In your work on that, could you elaborate how how you engage on that? Like, uh, it seems like a lofty goal for the administration, but what what's Timber's part in in holding the administration to that promise? Well, it is definitely an ambitious goal it's not unachievable um and if you look at like the city of newark in new jersey for instance an order of magnitude larger project that that was accomplished i believe in three years so it's definitely possible but some things need to change in order to make it happen even within the realm of what's possible there are things that are um, better than others and more cost efficient than others and so part of that is going to be engaging directly with city staff, potentially the mayor, definitely in the coming months, we'll be trying to have those discussions with the administration directly. And we always talk with city staff. You have posted in your newsletter about the hearing on environmental conservation. Uh, what was this? And you did say that it did not appear that the city of Troy had submitted comments for the February 6th local hearing. I was just curious if you could elaborate on what that means. So so every year after the governor in New York State uh, releases the executive budget, there are a series of joint hearings in the legislature on a variety of topics, sort of taking apart different proposals in the budget or proposals that people had wished they had seen in the budget and related legislative or administrative actions to make those components of the budget workable. Originally, Timber had submitted testimony to the local government's hearing, um, but were too weird. <laughs> and so they uh, uh, moved us over to environmental conservation, which it's an unusual thing to want to be in local governments and to get your second pick as environmental conservation. And so uh, we went in with uh, four major asks, the two biggest ones by far. One was that in the governor's executive budget proposal, she cut the cut the investment in clean water infrastructure funding from 500 million, which uh, has been the amount every year since 2019 down to 250 million at a time when that's not only politically, but operationally probably not possible to make work. And so restoring that funding and also adding $100 million specifically for lead service line replacement was our number one ask. Our second one, and, and this relates back to how, how we engage with the state on local issues, there's an outstanding concern that is definitely resolvable, that is nonetheless a huge obstacle to lead service line replacement, which is just sort of a legal misunderstanding on the part of a lot of cities about whether cities can bond to replace both the public and private half of a lead service line. There's really no ambiguity about the public side. On the private side, there's a clause in the, in the New York State Constitution that prohibits cities from giving gifts or loans to benefit private individuals or entities. It's not prohibited to benefit private individuals or entities if their benefit is incidental to the goal at hand. 
And so in this instance, if if the goal at hand is really to prevent childhood lead poisoning, if someone's lead pipe gets replaced in that like has some marginal impact on their property value, you didn't do it to improve their property value. You did it to address the jet, the lead pipe problem. There's a whole bunch of case law in New York State to support that this is completely fine. But it is for some cities a legitimate concern that that if they were to bond, they would get sued. And whether they win or not, you know, it would be a, a huge administrative burden. Just sorting out this question that um, even though in principle it's resolved, like specific to lead pipes, it hasn't been tested. So you went and you presented these concerns, these questions related to the having of the budget, asking for more for lead pipe replacement, the, the justification for the private versus the public. What, what comes of this? What came of this? We've been encouraged to get a, a couple emails from legislative offices asking for like more information on what we're seeing on the ground. And, and that's that's really what we're trying to do here is connect the dots and like um, smooth over the disconnects where something can be very clear at the local level and not so clear at the state level and vice versa. And and a lot of times people are working with incomplete information and making assumptions about the intentions of other people when sometimes that is true, but more often there are just like these huge information gaps. And so bridging that, this is what we're seeing at the local level. We want to tell you at the state level how, how this is how this is actually playing out and what small things you could do to really change the game. That's where we're trying to focus our energy at the moment. In that, in that sort of bridging, you also have launched a new program that attempts to engage everyday people. Uh, I'm curious about your program, uh, Adopt a FOIA. Uh, what is this program, and why did you decide to start it? FOIL is a shorthand for Freedom of Information Law in New York State. At the federal level, it's Freedom of Information Act, so FOIA. It's a really important way for citizens to get more information than what people necessarily want to present to you. In fact, it's the only way to get information, absent something like surreptitious and so it's a really, really important skill to develop. It's also something where all of the actors need to be acting in good faith um, for it to really work as intended. We have seen with some of the departments and agencies that we work with, our first instinct is never to escalate immediately. But after months and for some, for some agencies over a year, of really being patient and really trying to see things from their perspective, it's become clear to us that we need to apply a little bit more pressure. That's what the Adopt a FOIL program is really intended to address, is sort of a secret shoppers type situation where folks won't know which FOILs are coming from Timber and which ones aren't. We'll be tracking them and publishing scorecards of the agencies that we're monitoring to see what percentage of FOILs are answered, what percentage of these FOILs are being answered in good faith. A small portion of what we submit will be things that we know what they have and just see what we get back. And others will be, you know, genuine asks. Our feeling is that based on conversations we've had with a lot of people in the community, we are not alone in um, getting the cold shoulder on a lot of like routine, uncontroversial FOILs. Great. And if people want to get involved in this Adopt-A-Foil program, do they reach out to you or what's the process for engaging? Reaching out to me is perfect. Uh, Greg at TimberCorp.org. Beautiful. I just wanted to give you the last word. Is there any topic that you're paying attention to that we haven't touched on today that is important for our audience at the Hudson Mohawk Magazine to know about? I didn't make a big show of it, but in the January 31st Community Digest, we did publish an entire administrative order from the EPA relating to uh, lead service line replacement program in Troy that we strongly encourage people to give a read to, to get a better sense of the scale of what the problem is in Troy. 
in like one sort of log line or thesis statement. What's your takeaway from that? My takeaway from it is that the crisis as it exists today was entirely preventable. Greg Campbell Cohen, thanks for joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You got it. That was Elizabeth Press EP discussing Adopter Foil Initiative and the plan to replace lead pipes in Troy. For those just tuning in, I'm Lavender. And I'm Lavonia Mallory, and you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM in Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. In the latest installment of their Black History Month discussion series, Sean Young, co-founder of Schenectady Civil Rights Group All of Us Speaks with Tony Gaddy, founder and president and CEO of Upstate New York's Black Chamber of Commerce. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome um, to the All of Us series in Black History Month. I'm here with Mr. Tony Gaddy, uh, the founder, president, CEO of Upstate Black Chamber of Commerce. Thank you, brother, for being here. We really appreciate it. I, I really think the audience is going to have a lot to think about, get some insight from you, man, because it's important uh, in our community that, you know, economics, that we understand how much economics plays a role uh, in our liberation. So I'm really excited uh, to have this conversation. Where are we at today? How do we get to a place where we can have something like a Black Wall Street? Is that even possible? Oh, I'm eternal optimist. I believe everything is possible, but it takes intention to have to truly want to um, support each other in that way. Um, oftentimes with, you know, our organization, we have a tendency to focus on the commerce aspect of what a chamber is. Yeah. But our focus, and maybe this is one of the things that allows us to kind of, you know, be a little different and how we go about it is that we understand that the, our foundation as the chamber is built upon our community. Mm-hmm. We have to have strong black communities in order to have strong black people to have strong and run strong black businesses. So that in that regard, we're having a conversation around, so to speak, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's an eternal question that no one would ever be able to answer. But we understand it's not the chicken or the egg. It's actually the farm, mm-hmm. the farm, which is the soil. Yeah, that's the foundation. So our community is our foundation. And if we have to go back and take a look at the conditions of our community that will allow us to build healthy people mm-hmm. to start and grow mm-hmm. healthy businesses. And now we're talking about generational issues that have really nothing to do with commerce and that date back to when we actually were the commerce, mm-hmm. you understand? Yeah. So now yeah. we're talking about issues really around the health yeah. Of our community. Yeah. The socioeconomic aspects of our community, the trauma, the trust, the things that allow us to be neighbors in our hoods, if you will. Tell us a little bit about yourself, brother. Like, how did you come to be in the position you're in today as the founder, CEO, president of the Upstate Black Chamber of Commerce? As a kid growing up, we're kind of taught and educated to go towards, you know, this profession, be a doctor, be a lawyer, yeah. be this, be that. I think deep down, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, um, whether I got that from my pops, I think that's probably a large part of it. Yeah. But the, the freedom that comes with making your own choices, you know, having a say so on how much you generate income, wealth, just the freedom to move, make yeah. your own decisions as opposed to having a set schedule all day where you know every day is the same. Yeah. Never really um, conform to that. So I, I think I was always at heart going to end up someplace in an entrepreneurial <laughs> um, endeavor. Yeah. Um, how I got into this particular uh, space is um, interesting because my 
for most of my life, I was kind of with this for profit, you know, get to the bag and make yeah, money. Yeah, make yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't until I came out here in Schenectady and um, did some service as an AmeriCorps volunteer. Okay. That I started to kind of uh, reset my compass, not as just as a man, as a black man, but as a human being, mm-hmm. where it was not about what I got from something, but it was what I gave. Mm-hmm. And so I worked, and that's how you know I met your co-founder in uh, Jamaica over here at the Hamilton Art Center, and that led me into a path of service. Um, from that, I ended up serving some time as a second vice president of the Schenectady NAACP. Um, but probably the most rewarding aspect of uh, that part of my life, that chapter, because it also taught me about economic development. With my time served on the Schenectady County Public Library Board of Trustees. Yeah. And during that period, we took on this economic development aspect of uh, addressing the libraries in Hamilton Hill mm. and in uh, Mount Pleasant. The The challenge around that was, well, what do we do? Do we just put some money into them and renovate it? And we kind of took a stand and, was, and we kind of were really firm in our position, like, no, we want to build something new. Mm. And that purpose is what led to the branch on uh, State Street, the Phyllis Bourne. The Phyllis Bourne, yeah, yeah. yeah. Despite all the naysayers and the skepticism about something like that being possible, the numbers and the metrics, once it opened up, exceeded our expectation in terms of readership and library cards and participation in the community rooms. And that sparked the new branch on Crane. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. I believe is named after uh, Karen Johnson, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first foray into not just, you know, service on the public service aspect, um, but also economic development and um, moved back to Albany, um, got into the publishing um, business with a magazine, uh, struggled as any entrepreneur will. And it was during that time I met other entrepreneurs, black, you know, black entrepreneurs, women, minorities, et cetera, just kind of sharing experiences. Yeah. That impromptu gathering led to us starting a, networking group that would meet every other Wednesday at El Patron restaurant. But, um, you know, being the marketing person, I was like, well, if we're going to meet at El Patron, we're going to meet on two for one margarita Wednesdays. (laughs) (laughs) So the first time we met was in the main room. There were like maybe six people. And then that group grew from six, you know, to eight to 10 to 12. And then eventually we were meeting in the private dining room. Mm-hmm. of El Patron. Yeah, that's nice. That was 2017. Wow. And then from there, you know, it grew to like maybe on any given night, maybe 30, 40 people. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, well, we should put some structure to this. And that uh, led to a conversation with a brother by the name of Dave Smith, mm-hmm. who at the time was working in D.C. He's originally from Albany, but he was working in D.C. for U.S. Black Chambers. Okay. And okay. my man Paul, Paul Webster, he and Paul were on a train ride. And Paul called me and put Dave on the phone. Nice. And Dave and I spoke, and that's what led to 2018 for us, forming as Upstate New York Black Chamber. And then we reached out to our national office, which is in uh, Washington, D.C., spoke to them, shared with them our vision to not just be a city chamber, as most are. um, But we understood that if issues around economic development, poverty, business, resources, financing were prevalent here in the state capital, there's a good chance there were similar issues going on in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, yeah, Kingston, yeah. Poughkeepsie, Newark. Yeah, yeah. And so we apply for a regional footprint, mm-hmm. similar to what our people down in New Orleans have a regional chamber. So what does the region encompass? So we're, we're literally upstate New York. So everything north of Westchester is our footprint. So we have members, wow. we have members as far south as, um, you know, Kingston, Newburgh, Poughkeepsie. And as far west, we engage with Buffalo. So, okay. for example, when President Busby gets a call about the Buffalo Bills new stadium project, you know, the first person or one of the first people he'll call is, you know, upstate. And it was like, you know, we need you in Buffalo to go out there, advocate and make sure some of these MWBE opportunities and contracts with the stadium project, make sure some of our businesses are at least aware. So we went out there and attended a Meet the Prime event, got to meet with um, Turner Construction, Gilbane, who are, you know, responsible for the construction. Yeah. Um, Brother by the name of Fuquan Collins, 
obviously yeah. brother mm-hmm. with a name like Fuquan. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, spoke to him, you know, I was texting with him the other day just to kind of see where things stood. But same thing with going to Syracuse um, to meet the people of Micron, Fran Dillard and company, just to make sure that, you know, not that we're the end all be all, but when those business owners and whether they're members or not need a voice, yeah, it's incumbent upon us to you know hop on the train or whatever and get out there and represent. You know, this being Black History Month, the role of economics, mm-hmm. right, especially resources. What does that mean for liberation to you in, in, in your in your mind? Financial freedom, mm-hmm. the power to influence where you spend, how you spend, who you spend it on. And if we build that within our own community, so that spend, that 1.8, imagine a fraction of that $1.8 trillion yeah. circulating in our community for more than six hours. Mm-hmm. Even if it means, you know, we could go get it elsewhere yeah. for maybe the same price or less or whatever. Take the time to make that spend right there in your backyard because that investment right there is what transitions people from renters to homeowners. Mm. Those things create equity, generational wealth. I'm supporting your business. Mm. You're supporting my business. You're supporting your neighbors. Our kids are students in the same class. Maybe they both come up, become succession plan, and they end up leading the businesses that they inherit. That is what liberation and economics. But if you don't have a healthy community, to have healthy conversations built around where we are addressing issues around why don't we do business with each other. There's more of all of us segments on our website at mediasanctuary.org. The next segment comes from our archives. Lisa A. Phillips' 2016 book, Unrequited, The Thinking Woman's Guide to Romantic Obsession, is seen by many as a key to modern love and its pitfalls. Author Lisa A. Phillips, who worked for years in public radio and now teaches journalism at the State University at New Paltz, led a roundtable discussion at the Albany Public Library's North Albany branch on the subject of love stories for Valentine's Day. The author of Unrequited, The Thinking Woman's Guide to Romantic Obsession, talked about what led her into writing about love and heartbreak, her views about Cupid's Day, and what she plans to be working on next. I'm Lisa Phillips. I am an author and a journalist who specializes in the love and heartbreak beat. I'm also a journalism professor at SUNY New Paltz. And um, how did you get into the love and heartbreak beat? The way we all do, personal <laughs> experience. You know, I, I often describe myself as a writer who uses journalism as one of her methods to seek truth. Um, and so um, I wrote a book that is a hybrid of memoir and journalism called Unrequited, Women in Romantic Obsession. And I wrote that stemming from my own story of a pretty fierce obsession. Um, And then I started getting assignments from magazines when the book came out, because that's just something that happens when you write a book like that, where you're trying to get attention for the book and you make connections with editors. And the assignments I got were things like, write about the pain of romantic rejection, okay? Have a background in that, wrote about it in my book, and then I was doing, you know, taking it in a different direction for a magazine article, or write about the endless, ambiguous breakup in the age of the internet and apps and phones. It's like, okay, that's a new area, so I'll do that. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, I've got a beat here. And all along the way, I continued to write um, essays and other things related to that topic. So that's how that happened. And do you have like a, a, a regular gig or column at this point? No, you know, I, um, you know, I have a pretty demanding day job with teaching, so I don't need or want 
regular work. So I tend to take a couple of magazines assignment assignments a year and work on usually something first person uh, a time or two a year as well. And um, what one hopes to happen is that another book comes out of it eventually, and so that's the direction I'm heading in now. So I try to, I'm not good spreading myself too thin, and I already am spread too thin, so I, I tend to be slow and selective about my writing projects, because they consume me, everyone I do. <laughs> you just ask my husband. He's, you know, it, I get really wrapped up, and I can't sleep, and it, I work really hard on it, and so I can't do that all the time. Since this is going to play on Valentine's Day, how does Valentine's Day, or how has it played in your own life, in your both your creative life and kind of going back to your early memories of it? Um, and your daughter's life, who's now... Who's 15. <laughs> yeah, I'm raising a teenager. So I have always been skittish about Valentine's Day. I don't like the idea of a day where expectations are heightened because somebody decided to label a day a certain way. That makes me nervous. I'm, I'm a little bit that way with birthdays, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really didn't do much with Valentine's Day. I mean, um, my husband agrees with me on this front and so we've always had this tradition of what we call time-shifting Valentine's Day. We do not go out on Valentine's Day. We do not do anything big or special for each other. There might be a little gift or something like that, but generally we'll go out a week or two after and just say, okay, this is our Valentine's Day. And But we'll never mention anything about Valentine's Day. It's just our way of like, okay, we're taking control, setting aside a day. However, when my book came out... Um, Things changed in that I started doing these, what I called Alt-Valentine's Day events. So my book came out at the end of January in 2015. So a lot of my book tour stuff was pegged toward, okay, it's Valentine's Day, let's talk about unrequited love. And that was also really powerful because so many people are facing down Valentine's Day with either the memory of a heartbreak or they're dealing with a heartbreak things aren't going the way they want it to go in their love life. Like, that's the lived reality for so many people. Um, and it just felt good to talk about it, you know, to be in, in readings or gatherings and get people to talk about it. Um, last year, I got together with a group of writer friends, and we did a love and heartbreak reading, which was really a great reading, and, and the crowd was great. It wasn't on the 14th, but it was very close to that day. And people mm-hmm. really appreciate that space. Um, and it's so much more interesting than, like, where are you going out for dinner? Did you make your reservations? Mm-hmm. Did you get your flowers and your candy? It, yeah, that's just very dull to me. Did you have to, uh, growing up, do those things like, like the forced Valentines where you'd buy the packet of store vi- Valentines and get one to each person in the class and uh, it wasn't that that egalitarian then this was the 70s and 80s -hmm. it was all dog eat dog so like you wrote the valentine to the person you wanted to write to or the people you wanted to write to which meant that there were quite a few kids who didn't get as many valentines or any valentines they didn't regulate it now Mm -hmm. it's like if you're if you're going to bring one valentine and you're going to bring 20 you're going to do your whole class um it wasn't like that. Hey! Will you keep writing about love? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, I have something new in the works that, yeah. Yeah. But more from the parents' perspective now, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. That's, I'm getting a lot of that. It's like, okay. Because parents go through a lot when their kids fall in love or mm-hmm. even have really intense crushes it's a big deal it's really hard to know what to do mm-hmm. and you are feeling a lot of feelings you're sort of reliving a lot mm-hmm. when you watch your kid go through adolescence with those feelings and um there's some really really interesting research on that you know that what what happens to parents when their kids start dating and start getting connected um, mm-hmm. romantically to other kids so that's that's been my um my pursuit these days so is your daughter starting to have crushes and oh she's she's deep in oh she's yeah. she's on her third third boyfriend 
Um, and he, it, she's in a really good relationship right now, actually. I really like him. Um, and they seem to be very supportive and close, and I'm really glad. Mm-hmm. Um, even as I know that she's 15 and things <laughs> things are transient at that time, um, and she knows it too. But we all we know is what's now, right? So mm-hmm. right, right now, it's it's a good thing, and it's 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 a joy to see that happen. Earlier, Miss Phillips spoke with a young woman who came looking for help with a growing obsession whose health she worried about. The author noted afterwards that this occurs with some regularity. It makes her feel good to offer the sorts of insights all writers and journalists uncover in their best work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, maybe that's what redeems Valentine's Day. It's like a day to focus on this stuff. Yeah. And reckon with it. It, it, it's it's yeah it's sort of like a a, um, a Yom Kippur for <laughs> that's going pretty far okay of love, of love. Yeah. but I mean I think we could set that intention sure mm-hmm. yeah but but it, yeah it's true that it, it 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 does ask something of us as a as a milestone in the year and and going into the drugstore and seeing the red boxes and all that stuff. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, will you get what you want? That's sort of the essence of plot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This has been Paul Smart reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That segment came from the archives. For more segments from the archives, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org to see our big catalog of archive segments. In the next segment, Alexis Goldsmith speaks to Rochetta Ozane, founder and CEO of Vessel Project of Louisiana. Okay, I'm Rochetta Sibley Ozane. I am the founder, director, and CEO of the Vessel Project of Louisiana. I'm also the Gulf Fossil Finance Coordinator for Texas Campaign for the Environment. And just for our listeners in the capital region of New York. Can you talk about the Vessel Project and Texas Campaign for the Environment? Yes, of course. So the Vessel Project is a small mutual aid environmental justice organization. We we provide mutual aid emergency assistance to those living in low-income, black, indigenous, people of color communities that are impacted by climate-induced disasters or just have everyday emergencies. The Texas Campaign for the Environment is based in Texas. My job with the campaign is I am the Gulf Fossil Finance Coordinator. That sounds like a really long title, but basically what I do is I go after the financial institutions that fund, finance, and insure the facilities that are in our communities. So we're sitting in Port Arthur, Texas, which is at the heart of the petrochemical build-out, surrounded by those facilities that you just mentioned, and also proposed facilities, expanding facilities. And today you were on a panel called Nothing Was Released, was the title of the panel. Can you just reflect a little on what Nothing Was Released means to you? What Nothing Was Released means to me is that industry always have these releases we've been calling them leaks for many years um, of gases and that's when everybody looks at them right when we see the flare we see the fire or we see a big smoke cloud we look at them and we say "Uh uh-oh they are doing something bad but living in these communities we know that there's something being released every day sometimes we can't see it Sometimes you can't smell it, but you can feel it. You might get a headache, you might feel kind of woozy. But also, living in those communities, we become nose blind to it, we look over it. When we bring people there, they can notice these things are happening. But when you ask industry, are you all releasing anything? They always say, no, you know, it's safe, we're not releasing anything harmful. Oh, that flare, that fire is just us burning off extra material that we've made, we're getting rid of it. It's actually safe. It means that there won't be an explosion. So those are the type of answers we get 
from industry when we know that our family members have cancer and asthma and respiratory conditions from living by these facilities and studies show that long-term exposure to industrial pollution is the cause of these issues in many of these communities. So nothing released means that we aren't anybody. We're nothing. They're basically saying, you know, the people in this community don't matter. It doesn't matter if we kill them. We're going to continue to release these chemicals and tell you that nothing happened because who cares about these people anyway? I think that leads nicely into my next question, which you touched on how the fossil fuel industry isn't just extracting fossil fuels from these communities. They're extracting much more. Can you talk about what you meant by that? Yes, when I talk about these facilities and these companies being extractive, when you think about small towns like Mossville, which was a town that was founded by free slaves, it was predominantly black community. They were thriving. They had nightclubs and stores and churches, graveyards. All the community members knew each other. And then in comes Big Sassol, South African oil. And they pushed this community out. They pushed them into a community where they didn't know anybody. There were little resources in this community. And now they had to figure out how to survive in a new community. When they were in their old community, they knew each other. They could knock on their neighbor's doors, ask for a cup of sugar, ask for a cup of milk. They could ask their neighbors to watch their children. But now they're in a community with strangers. Their children are afraid to play outside. They don't know the new people. So that's one way of being extractive. But also they're extracting our resources, like our wetlands, our dunes, which is our natural storm protections. They're extracting our wildlife, like our crawfish and our fish and our shrimp. That is poison now because those waterways are poisoned. In Calcasieu Parish, where I live in Louisiana, there's a fish eating advisory that we can only eat two pounds of fish from some of the estuaries a month because they've been poisoned so much. That's taken away from our way of living, from our livelihoods. And we already are in a food desert and you're telling me we can't eat from the land because it's being poisoned. All of those are ways that these industries are being extracted. Another thing that you touched on that I really wish we'd had more time to get into was um, genocide. Um, and earlier in the talk, we talked about how the areas where the petrochemical plants are sited are, are former plantations. Can you talk about what you mean by the petrochemical build-out being an extension of genocide? Yes, yeah, so these facilities, if you put the petrochemical build-out map on top of a plantation map from during slavery time, the maps match almost identically. Um, these facilities are cited heavily in or near black, low-income, uh, indigenous people of color communities. The folks in those communities are killed, they are murdered, they are pushed out for that land, for that money, and it's not talked about. Black girls go missing, uh, thousands of black girls go missing every year. No one looks for them, no one tries to figure out where they are. And we've been able to link this to the amount of workers who are coming in from other places that are coming in to work. Um, the amount of the, the traffic, whenever some of these industries have what they call a turnaround, there's all of a sudden maybe 300 people that are in that community to make a quick dollar for just a few weeks and then they disappear. Where did they go? They, they don't go back to a place that they call home. These are people who are going from job to job. It's hard to track them down, but our girls go missing with them. And so those are some of the ways, again, going back to that extraction and that genocide, that you're killing whole communities, you're killing people, you're killing cultures. And some of the places where these facilities are located, if you look at history and you look at black history and you think about the way some of these man-made lakes have been, been built, some of the complete towns throughout history were drowned out and flooded out for the, for the sake of land development, for the sake of building industry and making money on top of these communities. And we're talking about hundreds and thousands of people who have been killed for that right here in the United States. We're not talking about in other countries. We're talking about in the United States and how black, brown, and indigenous people have been made sacrifices 
for so long throughout history and people believe that we're in 2024 there's no way that this is still happening but yet in the state of Mississippi in Jackson they just found over 200 bodies buried behind a jail like this is still real um it's still happening and it's not being talked about enough so obviously you put a lot of energy into just trying to stop these facilities what if you could put your energy into building a different world? What does land without petrochemical facilities mean? What does it look like for these communities? So many people always ask, you know, well, what are we going to do? We, we, everything is made of fossil fuels. And the, the number one thing people tell me all the time is your glasses are made out of fossil fuels. You won't be able to see without fossil fuels or plastics. And I always say that the reason why we keep going the way that we're going is because there's no alternatives, right? We haven't been investing in alternatives. We haven't been looking at alternatives. We've been putting all of our eggs in one basket for too long. And there's another way of life. There was another way of life before these industries came. We knew how to live off the land. We knew how to grow our foods. We don't have as many green spaces as we once had. I think that we can have so many jobs in the cleanup process. Cleaning up these facilities is going to take a long time, it's going to take a lot of jobs, and it's going to take the people who are experienced in dealing with these chemicals to clean them up. So I think it looks like that. I think it looks like educating our people um, in how they can use those skills in other ways. There can be commercial welders. Uh, we need welders for things like solar energy, wind energy, talking to the community, seeing what they want. In Southwest Louisiana, we have the I-10 bridge. There's no bike weight lanes, no walking lanes on that bridge. I imagine there being bike lanes and walking tracks and more green spaces, more community gardens in our area cleaned up, our water cleaned up, children being able to stay outside and play without being sick, us being able to get a glass and go to the faucet and catch water to drink, as opposed to buying plastic bottles of water adding more chemicals into our body. So those are just some of the things I imagine, but I, I believe that it stops with turning the faucet off, stopping the continuation of this build out first, then cleaning it up and talking to communities about what they want in their communities. And just 30 seconds, New York is considering a bill to reduce plastic packaging by 50%, get toxics out of packaging, make it more recyclable, reimburse municipalities who have to burn plastic packaging. Do you have a message for New York legislators from here in Texas? Yes, from here in Texas. I'm, I'm from Louisiana, but we're in Texas, so I would say... New York, listen to community members, listen to the people that are impacted. They're the closest to the problem, they have the solution. Plastics is killing people. This will be a great move and a big move for the state of New York. It will pivot the whole world to say, look at what New York is doing. Let's make those same kind of bold moves. State like Louisiana, they need to see that other states are on board with us getting away from plastics. We have to break free from plastics. If the production and the transportation is happening in the South, but states like New York are making bold moves like this, it means a big thing for Louisiana. And it says, stop this production because communities don't want this pollution anymore. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for the day, where are we going? We're going to dinner. Right. That was Rosetta Osain of Vessel Project of Louisiana providing mutual aid for people who have experienced natural disasters and chemical disasters. Wow, and that's our show. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm still Lavonia Mallory. <laughs> and I'm still Lavender. Our engineer is Joan Eason. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley, EP, Moses Nagel, Paul Smart, Alexis Goldsmith, and our two co-hosts, Lavona Mallory and myself, Lavender. This is a team effort. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And tune in weekdays from 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. 
Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platforms. And thank you and our listeners for making this all worthwhile. Thank you.